0: to data from Statista.com, the average price of a new home sold in 2020 in the USA was $391,000. According to Climate Change Realty, the price of finding your real estate agent and creating thousands of dollars in donations to support climate action is and always will be $0. Welcome to the podcast. Arielle, really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's great to meet you as well.
0: Yeah, delighted to have you. And you know, we always like to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. But today we're going to do something different and we're going to start with fact or fiction. Did you or did you not create Got Milk? (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, so I'm going to clarify that question just a smidgen. Uh, So Got Milk was a big campaign, uh, I believe in the 90s and into the 2000s. So there were a whole lot of Got Milk commercials uh, created by Goodby Silverstein and Partners, which is an ad agency in San Francisco. I worked at Goodby Silverstein and Partners, and while I was there, I was a I was a junior copywriter for them. While I was there, I created a Got Milk commercial for um, the Women's U.S. Soccer Team. The uh, I'm drawing a blank. The whatever the uh, big event was, um, the Women's World Cup. That's the that's the term I was going. It's for. a big one. Yeah. Um, but so the way the got milk commercials worked. This is probably way more information than you guys actually cared about. No, the way the it. got milk commercials it. work <laughs> is they were um, they were created by the California Milk Board in partnership with Goodby Silverstein and Partners, and then if they did well in California, other state milk boards might buy them up, and so they'd start to become national commercials. Um, since mine was geared specifically towards the Women's World Cup, unless you happen to be in San Francisco for the two weeks that it was playing, you didn't see it. Well, but sh- I have created one.
0: Well, I'm sure some people did. Shout out to the Women's <laughs> World Cup soccer team of 1992 or whatever we were talking about. <laughs> Cool. I, I thought
1: 2002. I don't remember. Something 2002,
0: like that. a decade off. What's the difference? Uh-huh. But yeah, fun, fun way to get the show started. And then we always, you know, how, how did you get to be doing what you're doing now?
1: Um. Yeah, so, so I do have a little bit of a random background. So I, you know, I went to school, I got a degree in English. Um, and just as I was finishing the degree in English, I read Hyperspace by Michio Kaku. And was in awe and decided that if I ever went back to school, I was going to study physics. And so I went out into the world with my uh, degree in English and I worked at the ad agency. I actually worked at Astrology.com for a year or so. Um, I did a lot of uh, sort of freelance writing for a little while. And then I did decide I wanted to go back to school. Um, And so I went back and I got a degree in physics. Uh, I got a master's degree in geophysics. I studied earthquakes for a couple of years, um, and then ended up sort of combining those two backgrounds. So I started doing more science communication, um, and I got involved, uh, first I got involved with a couple national labs, actually. Um, And then I got involved with the Future of Life Institute. And while I was there, I did a lot of work on existential risks. Uh, And so that's that's the idea that um, we could, well, existential risk in general is, you know, risk to the destruction of humanity. uh, And the Future of Life Institute tended to focus more on human-caused existential risks. So it tended to be, you know, due to artificial general intelligence or climate change or biotechnology or nuclear weapons.
0: What's your favorite book slash philosophical work? (laughs)
1: <laughs> on on these issues
0: no not just just I <laughs> oh, mean you just studied you general? studied English so I mean I'm assuming oh. you read many things and then you studied physics so then I'm assuming you read lots of papers and then you got a master's in geophysics so I'm just wondering where yeah like what what you read a lot of work I'm imagining I'm wondering <laughs> what stands out when I ask you what your favorite is
1: oh uh, I feel like a cliche but I am sort of a fan of Jane Austen Um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I I don't know that I have a favorite book. I mean, that is sort of one where when you read enough, it's sort of like, you know, what's your favorite movie? It's, it can be, it can be hard. I'll think about this and we can come back to it.
0: No worries. Yeah. I haven't read many books, so I do have a very easy favorite and it's principles by Ray Dalio. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Mm It's just about, it's just giving you like maxims of how to lead a successful life from the founder of the most successful hedge fund of all time. And he very logical thinker he's like if you want to achieve this then you should do that and then the whole book is about it's like his autobiography and then it's his principles on how to succeed just generally in life and then he goes into his work principles of how he's built his company to be this idea meritocracy where the best ideas win it's not an autocracy where one person says what to do it's an idea meritocracy where the best ideas determine how they're going to move forward how do you determine
1: what the best ideas are
0: by by using believability-weighted decision-making to prioritize ideas. So, for example, if you and I were to have a conversation about um, how to sell your house, I'm more believable because I've sold more houses than you. So, so like, if it's a voting system, maybe I – and mean, this is, is personal for a house, but, like, if you were another realtor and you sold 10 houses and I sold – one, you would have five votes and I would have one in, in a discussion of 20 people talking about what's the best way to sell the house. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So how how from what why English initially? And then how did you what was it that sparked your interest in like science and physics?
1: <laughs> so so yeah, I didn't get into this initially, but the English was actually a fluke. I was studying science to begin with. Okay. Um I went to I went to the University of Wisconsin for two years, um, and I was studying. I think I was studying zoology. I don't remember exactly. Um, but I was I, I I liked reading. I loved reading, and so every semester I made sure I took an English course because I was fairly confident that if I wasn't being forced to read for class, I wouldn't be reading at all. Um, And two years in sort of, this is a much longer story we won't get into, but I ended up having to transfer schools and I went to the university of Oregon. Um, and I was, they didn't have a zoology program there at the time. And so I was sort of going back to biology and they had different course requirements and I was in my junior year and I was like halfway through my junior year. And I sat down with the guidance counselor and, um, and, She was looking at my, you know, the transcript and what I had done so far. And she was explaining to me that in order to get a degree in biology, I still had two and a half years plus summer school um, if I was going to to complete the degree. And then she kind of looked at my at her computer funny and she was like, oh, you could get a degree in English and graduate on time without any extra summer courses. And that's how I have an English degree.
0: (laughs) Nice. So you've always been interested in science.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. When then what led you to eventually start to focus on existential risk mitigation?
1: So that was, that was primarily the job at, at FLI. Um, certainly studying earthquakes, I got a little bit into just a, a little bit of better understanding of how society thinks about risk. Um, it's not something that I actually studied, but it, it's, you, you sort of, it's there in the periphery when you're studying earthquakes. Um, so I was, I was certainly interested in it. And then, yeah, the job at FLI is that's what they do. And that's sort of how I got into it.
0: So what is Future of Life Institute and what was your experience like working there?
1: Yeah, so the Future of Life Institute is an organization that that they're, they're sort of a do tank more than anything else that, and research uh, grant-making institution that focuses on existential risks Uh, primarily associated with artificial intelligence, but also just existential risks in general. Um, And so while I was there, the two biggest areas that we looked at uh, were artificial intelligence um, and nuclear weapons. And so they actually got... I want to say they got about $10 million in funding from Elon Musk in 2015 for AI safety research. Um, And then... Uh, they got they got support from from other groups as well, but that one was specifically for AI safety research. And then they've they've gotten another big grant uh, donation since uh, since I left. Um, and I was there for about four years. Uh, and it was it's a really it was a really exciting place to work. Uh, I got to get involved in a lot of really interesting projects, uh, meet a lot of just really amazing people. Uh, the the Fli team is a really uh, fun group to work with.
0: What was your role?
1: <laughs> it was sort of ever evolving. Um, That's I, it was technically like I think I brought, got brought on to be like their news editor or something like that. And then it sort of quickly expanded into director of communications and then director of communications and outreach. And I, I was really involved in just about almost everything they were doing, not everything, but but nearly everything. Um it was a very, very small team, so it was very easy to wear many, many hats.
0: Cool. All right, let's talk about what's going on now. What 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 is Tango Future and what um what made you want to start this organization?
1: Yeah, so Tango Future is an organization that I launched with Suzy Snyder. And Susie is one of the people that I actually met through uh, FLI. Uh, she was working on a campaign called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And she was also um the president of the board of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Um, they actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is actually a treaty passed now at the United Nations that has made nuclear weapons illegal. Uh, her her organization um, was very instrumental in getting that passed, and they actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in two thousand and seventeen. So, a little bit of information about her. Uh, awesome. But so Shout so out. she, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So she and I were both working, I, I was helping her with some of their efforts and then she and I were both sort of working in this UN space. Um, and we experienced firsthand, you know, sort of what, what you he- hear a lot about um, sort of this idea that policymakers uh, do not always understand how emerging technology works They don't understand how policies that they're creating around emerging technology might impact people. They don't usually understand how the technology itself might impact people around the world. Um, And then on the opposite side, people who are developing the emerging technologies usually don't understand how policy works. Uh, They also often don't understand how their technologies may impact uh, different communities around the world. Um, And we wanted to start looking at how to address the the communication and knowledge gaps between those groups of people. Uh, But when we started looking at that more, we realized that this is a problem that exists across all sorts of different sectors. It's not just between policymakers and emerging technology or people developing emerging technology. We see it Uh, between policymakers and scientists we see it just among different fields in science we see it uh, between you know people in different uh, business sectors Um, people people in arts and communication who would usually be very good at helping you communicate these ideas aren't usually part of the conversations so so what we wanted to do was start looking at how can we help address these communication and knowledge gaps across all of these different sectors more effectively. And then in addition to that, one of the the problems that that we see a lot is even now, while people are making more of an effort to address uh, diversity issues, it's still still a problem. Um, and, And especially when you're looking at these Big problems that are going to affect people globally. We're not we're not getting enough people from around the world at the table, and we're not hearing enough from people who have lived experiences. So, did you, were you say nope. something? No. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so one of the things that we see, uh, or you know, so, so an example uh, with the the nuclear treaty that got passed. One of the things that happened is for. I don't know seven decades. Uh, there were there were a lot of treaties that were passed, but there were there were always efforts to get nuclear weapons banned at the United Nations, and they never went anywhere. Um, and where where the people who wanted to you know just completely ban nuclear weapons finally started to have success was when they began bringing in people who had had lived experiences. They brought in the people who had survived the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They brought in the people who had lived too close to nuclear weapons testing sites and had seen the negative repercussions of that. Um, And when we started hearing from these people who had actually been affected by these humanitarian impacts, that was when a lot of countries started to reassess their stance on nuclear weapons, um, and so so the value of lived experience, I think, is often underrated in a lot of discussions, and we want to try to address that. So, so Tango, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, well, go ahead. <laughs> well, the idea
0: the idea being humanize a problem so people can actually understand what yeah, kind of re- yeah. repercussions come from it.
1: Yep. Yeah, and so, so what we're trying to do with Tango, which it stands for Technology, Arts and a New Global Objective for the Future, uh, Tango Future, um, what we're trying to do is, is a couple fold. So one is just to create this database of people, especially women and, and people of color from around the world, who either are experts in their fields or who have those relevant lived experiences. Um, so we want to have we want a single place where people can go to sort of find these people who have lots of different expertise, lots of different experiences. Um, and then we want to facilitate and support meetings between the, these diverse people, um, you know, from the different backgrounds and, and you know, from the different locations. Um, and start getting them also having meetings with uh, with policymakers or have them meet with you know people who are developing technologies and just try to start creating more of these opportunities for people to interact with others who just are outside of their their normal bubbles
0: and so this is run as, as a nonprofit organization mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gotcha. And we're still
1: very young. We're very much getting started right now. Um, we've got we've got some cool people who are involved, but but we're very young right now. We're just getting started.
0: Well, awesome time to be talking to you. That's cool. <laughs> so Thank you. I'm guessing, and I want to ask, the most effective way to bridge the gap between all these different people, whether they're experts in one thing or they're policymakers or their industry or they're the general public is to have them all engage in conversation all around the specific issue? Is is that kind of the idea or?
1: Yeah, so what what we're going to experiment with is the idea. So to take a quick step back, I think there's a lot of information that exists about different fields. So if you want to learn about artificial intelligence, tons of people have written about it. Um, If you want to learn about bias and artificial intelligence, tons of people have written about it. Um, lots of information exists online. You can find TED Talks and podcasts and anything else uh, about these issues. But if you're not in the space and you have questions, there aren't really people that you, it's not that easy to just find someone who does this for a living. And so what we want to try to do, and then on, on the opposite side as well, if you're in that space of AI bias, you actually may or may not have had that much interaction with people who have been impacted, especially if some of the the ways in which people are impacted by the technology is um, triggered by cultural differences. And so if they're from a completely different culture, you may not have interacted with them. And so what we want to try to do is experiment with the idea that giving people a chance to interact with and ask questions of and answer questions, um, you know, Having these conversations, actual conversations with people from other fields, from other parts of the world, can hopefully help address a lot of these gaps that we can start uh, talking. I think think the interaction is what's often missing.
0: So if I'm like a weapons manufacturer... I think I have like huge big fat pockets from like the military industrial complex. Why is someone like that going to come join a round table with a bunch of people from around the world to talk about potentially decreasing the amount of purchases of their product?
1: So I mean to a certain extent y- you may not be the target audience to be honest. Um I think I hope that that's not the case. I think that there are a lot of people uh say in the weapons industry who um are still interested in having those conversations, and hearing from people who might be impacted. I mean, I, I think I, I do you know the people that I've met in the weapons industry still want to make sure that their systems aren't, you know, inadvertently killing civilians or in, inadvertently killing the wrong people. Um that is something that they want to to try to prevent. Uh so so I, I think I'm hoping that that we will still be able to get people like that into the conversation, but um, you know, if if we're getting people from other parts of the world to talk about how AI has impacted them, and, and their conversations are happening with policymakers, uh, that's still really helpful. I think uh, trying to reach out to the policymakers. Um, I, I think we'll probably start with the lower hanging fruit—the people who are actually interested in hearing from these other groups—and uh, then hopefully prove that this is a valid uh, approach.
0: Yeah, I think their weapons are probably purposely killing civilians, but that's that's a discussion <laughs> for another another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a specific issue that you're working on at the current moment? Is it's yeah? Is there some particular topic that you're, you guys are focused on right now?
1: For Tango, uh, yeah. n- no, not really. So okay. so what we're trying to do, we're not trying to say that X, Y or Z issue needs to be addressed. We're saying we need to hear from other people to understand oh, how okay. X, Y or Z issue is impacting them.
0: Um, and what are you doing at uh, in your consulting practice? Is that right? Mag 10?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I work with different nonprofits typically in this, in this same space. Uh, so, FLI, I was working as a consultant when I was at the Future of Life Institute. Um, I worked with an organization called AllFed, which helps. Um, they're, they're doing research and they're doing more outreach to try to ensure that people have access to enough food and nutrients if we do end up uh, facing an existential risk. So, um, you know, if if there is nuclear war and we end up in in a situation with nuclear winter, how do we make sure that the people who have survived still have enough food? Um, Or, you know, same with an asteroid impact or super volcano or something like that. Right. Sorry, just suck. No worries. Use my voice.
0: No oh, yeah, no, you're all good. Yeah, let's let's kind of talk about some some of these issues that you're pretty well versed in cuz I think they're all really interesting if you uh tied the whole existential fear of death thing. <laughs> um so let's talk about what is AI and like the essential risks and opportunities presented by this type of technology.
1: Yeah, so <sighs> artificial intelligence <laughs> it's funny you asked what it is cuz I've I've been in so many conversations lately where no one has good definitions, but it's, it's essentially, um, types of computer machine learning, um, that, that enable the system to figure out how to approach a problem without a human making that decision for the, for the system. Um, so a very, very basic example are you know, just like a Google search. Uh, their algorithms figure out which uh, website you, want, you most likely want to see based on the words you typed into your search. And no one programs uh, the algorithm to say, if someone puts X, Y, or Z into the search, then this is the, these are the websites you present. The, the algorithm has to figure it out on its own.
0: So I that. No, that, no, that does. Yeah, I just wanted to get, I obviously know what it is. I just wanted to yeah. get a, a brief <laughs> explanation. And then what are the existential risks to something like this or the essential risks?
1: Yeah, so so the, the existential risks that people worry about with artificial intelligence is what happens if it, it achieves human level or greater intelligence. So right now, most artificial intelligence is... What's called narrow, so it can do a specific task, but it doesn't have the same general intelligence that a human does. So the example that I use is, um, you know, you can program or you can teach a, a, an AI system to learn to play chess. You can teach an AI system to navigate through a city. You can teach an AI system to, um, you know, do a do a Google search, uh, but none of those systems yet at least know how to figure out how to do some other task that what each of those are you know they're three different systems whereas I as a person can read a map and figure out how to navigate through a city or um, you know I as a person can learn another language um, things like that and I I know how to do all of those things so that's considered general intelligence and so we're the the concerns are what happens if we start developing AI systems that have that general level intelligence that are able to start figuring out how to do all these different things uh, and they start doing things that we don't want them to do. So either, I, I think one of the biggest concerns is just that we don't train them well enough and so they start doing things, figuring out how to do things that we really just never wanted them to do. Um, how do we anticipate that? How do we get the systems to stop? It's very easy to say something like, oh, we just need to, you know, put a stop button on it so we can turn it off or unplug the system. Um, but an analogy I like there is that if you get, a, if you get an AI system that's advanced enough, turning it, turning it off, in air quotes, can be kind of like trying to turn off the internet. Um, it's mm-hmm. just it's not something you can do if the system is smart enough, it's probably trying to figure out ways to prevent you from turning it off. Um, and then, of course, there's also concerns. You, it, it, we're sort of assuming that for the most part, if uh, artificial general intelligence does go wrong, it's because it, it's unintentional. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are always concerns that someone will intentionally design an AGI that does bad things.
0: Well, there's also a a moral question where if something does have general intelligence, are you turning off a light or are you killing something, you know?
1: So, yeah, there's there's a lot of questions there as well about does intelligence mean consciousness Uh,
0: and
1: that i i don't have an answer for that one
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> no. um, but as but what you, as but as, as far as you know we're we're currently using this type of tech for for weapons right now to wage war against other nations no no no
1: no no. <laughs> um, so yeah so i what you're touching on is i do a lot of work with autonomous weapon systems as well and so the idea of autonomous weapons systems yeah these are these are weapon systems that can um, that have some sort of function that doesn't require... Fun- they have some sort of functionality or capability that doesn't require human intervention of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and we already see this with some weapon systems anyway. Uh, sort of a lot of navigation uh, on missiles at this point uh, might be automated. Um, there's there's a bunch of other things that, that do currently exist. There are uh, entire systems that... That are fairly automated, where where there's a much bigger debate is is it a human or a machine that's making the decision to take a human life? Um, and right now, there's I, I haven't actually been keeping up with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine uh, in terms of autonomous weapons, but there there have Me been either. some reports previously uh, of. Possible use of autonomous weapon systems in Syria. Um, but for the most part, they they aren't at the level right now where the weapon itself is deciding uh, to, to take a human life. Um, the technology sort of exists. It hasn't really been deployed in a weapon system to a very large extent. Um and most people are pretty hesitant to try to develop the Terminator.
0: Right. So when it when it comes to your work and your kind of framework of looking at how to make an impact through existential threat m- mitigation, where is AI, autonomous weapons, nuclear weapons, and the topic of climate change? How how are those things all like connected?
1: Yeah. So the idea is. Any of these uh, could become an existential risk to humanity. So, um,
0: I mean, climate change, kind of. Yes. Nuclear war. I mean, kind of like. Yes. We're there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, If if nuclear war breaks out, um, most people predict that there will be some people who survive, but I, I don't really. I'm not particularly. Eager to live in a world that has just survived a nuclear war, hmm. not a full-scale nuclear war. I think that would be pretty devastating. Um, and yeah, if if we do trigger nuclear winter, uh, that would be that would be mass starvation for most of the world. So, right. so yes, that's that's sort of how nuclear weapons could trigger that. I, I can I can elaborate more. I was sort of just.
0: Sure, uh, I'm. I'm wondering how you mitigate the threat of this kind of stuff. I've obviously spent a lot of time talking about how to mitigate the issues with climate change, but what is the, like, what are your thoughts on how to prevent these, these things from becoming huge large scale issues that we're living with every day?
1: Um, I mean, I would like to see a world without nuclear weapons. Uh, I don't think, I, I am personally not convinced that any level of deterrence is worth the, the risk that comes with them. Realistically, I don't know how countries can diplomatically reduce uh, to zero, uh, at least given, given current politics, uh, which is a shame because I think even just 10 years ago, that might have been more doable. But right now, I don't think that it's, I don't know how realistic it is. Um, but I think if you want to mitigate risks of nuclear uh, nuclear war, you've got to get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, that said, there are a few things with nuclear weapons that can be done, even while we still maintain arsenals. Um, are, are you familiar with uh, sort of the hair trigger alert? Uh, hair trigger system?
0: alert? No. no, I'm not.
1: So, so, what we have set up right now are um, there's so there's sort of the the three pronged uh, nuclear system. We've got uh, silos that have uh, nuclear weapons in the ground. We have submarines with nuclear weapons, and we have bombers with nuclear weapons. Uh, Russia Russia has the same thing. So this is sort of an old Cold War era setup. Um, and the way it's the way it works is if. either either we hear that that Russia has launched a nuclear attack against us or if we were to launch a nuclear attack against Russia I'm pretty pretty sure both countries have this in place we assume that any of the nuclear weapons that are in the silos would be destroyed and we want a chance to retaliate with them um, before they get destroyed and so if we learn of an attack coming towards us we would we can launch immediately the weapons that are that are in the silos, and that's supposed to be. Um, the idea is that that's some sort of active deterrence. There's, there's better explanations of how this works mm-hmm. online, um, but so the idea is that's supposed to be an active uh, deterrence. But you basically have about thirty minutes between when the other country launches their nuclear weapons at us, and when we would have and when they would land. On, Us America, on our land. so
0: them Russia, yeah, or basically
1: yeah, China,
0: yeah.
1: Russia. So most of our cold war or most of our nuclear policies are cold war based. So it's going to be primarily Russia is the basis for most of our nuclear policies today. Okay. Um, anyway, this is this is sort of a lot of information, but the point is
0: what's important it's kind of relevant like having a button to like kill everyone it's like we kind of just like walk around every day like it's no big deal and i'll, I'll talk to you about like asteroids later on i think that's another thing that, that people don't think about but it it's kind of weird that like this is just the way it is
1: well so so it gets weirder i i will actually i'll keep going with this so yeah. so yeah let's let's pretend russia were to decide to launch an attack against the us it would take 30 minutes from when the the weapons were launched from Russia to land on American soil. And so um, that would give us, you know, that means we've got 30 minutes to decide whether or not we want to respond by launching uh, the weapons that we have in the silos. Um, and so that basically gives the and the president is the one who makes this decision. So that gives the president less than 30 minutes really to decide whether or not to retaliate. And one of the things that has happened is there have been a lot of close calls where the, the information we were getting was, you know, say a false alarm, yeah, um, or just incorrect. Uh, and so the president only has—I I mean, it's going to take a couple minutes after, the, you know, again, just pretending that Russia had launched. It would take a couple minutes after the weapons launched before the president would even learn. Um, And then you still have, like, all the communication. I think the Union of Concerned Scientists estimated that the president would end up with about 12 minutes to decide whether or not to retaliate. Um, And so this puts us at a huge risk. So if they are getting the wrong information, they've got 12 minutes to sort of figure that out. Um, And it's a lot of it's it's it's, you know. Even one nuclear weapon is one too many. So having mm-hmm. quite a few silos around the U.S. where where we retaliate, and the reason that this is especially silly is even if we are hit, we still have nuclear submarines and we still have nuclear bombers that aren't going to be impacted and that could still retaliate. So there's no reason for us to have that particular system in place. And so so it's stuff like that where we could just remove that hair trigger alert. We could say. Um, Or we can also just generally say we have a no first use policy. We won't use a nuclear weapon unless it's, you know, unless we are attacked with a nuclear weapon.
0: Do we not have Um, that now?
1: No. (laughs) No, we reserve the right to. I I think the idea is if another country uses a nuclear weapon against another country, the U.S. wants the option to uh, retaliate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also have a policy that I won't drive on the left side of the road when I'm going to the gym. But I mean, mistakes are made. Policy is just is <laughs> just something people say. Yeah, let's let's not let's let's not not do this. I mean, I'm trying to think about e- each side of it. That like, in a way, maybe that the nuclear weapons have caused peace. But like, this even having like a one tenth of a percent of a chance of this happening is probably way more than than zero which would which would probably be ideal i mean you said you don't you don't have a a realistic idea for how to achieve new denuclearization but what have you kind of learned throughout your career with trying to come to conclusions about this and i know people have been working on this for probably close to 100 years now
1: yeah nuclear weapons have been around since world war ii so yeah um I mean, so, so yeah, so there's, there's steps that we can take that at least minimize the risk of us using them accidentally. And so removing hair trigger alert, there's no, there's no benefit to that. Um, I, is, is I, that a,
0: a to, like a, an autonomous weapon system, the hair trigger alert?
1: No, no, no. That's, that's the, the weapons are the, the weapons that are in the silos are always ready to be launched. Okay. And that's, that's the process that I was talking about where the president only has a half hour to decide because gotcha. they have to decide before, uh, the attack hits the U.S. attack hits U.S. soil. Whereas, if you say you're going to rely on the submarines and/or the bombers, you can wait until we actually get attacked, and then you know for a fact you know that it wasn't uh, misinformation, a false alarm. Um, there, there have been a lot of a lot of uh, false alarms over the years that nearly triggered nuclear war.
0: Do you think that maybe AI could propose a solution to this issue by connecting people together with better technology? Because remember, we talked at the beginning about how when you bring someone into the room who's a survivor and you humanize the situation, you feel empathy and you're less likely to push a button and like play a battle. What is it? Battleships where you just <laughs> like um, could... Advancements in technology like this potentially bring us closer together and prevent something like that?
1: I'm personally not hugely optimistic, to be honest. I think if technology was going to enable peace, we would have more peace as technology advanced, and I'm not seeing that.
0: Hold on. Do, is, do we not have more peace than we've ever had in the past looking at human history on a geological state? meaning since humans have existed for hundreds of thousands of years is this not the the most amount of people who are least at war than it's ever been
1: i don't think we know that do we i
0: i I don't i don't know i'm just human
1: recorded human history only goes back a few thousand years
0: that's that's fair that's fair point but i mean we're not rating our neighbor neighboring tribes slaughtering all the the men and taking the women and children and integrating i mean i mean, think I, that
1: depends on i think that depends on how you're defining we right now right <laughs>
0: well as a as a, um, a percentage of the total population like it's there's there's less of that going on now than ever before i would suspect
1: I don't have the numbers. Um, I and I haven't looked into this personally. I have heard a lot of criticisms of cherry picked data for people who have made those arguments. Okay. But I personally haven't looked into the into that data. And I don't think. I mean, even it, I, I'm not convinced of the argument that that we're more peaceful, I think how battles are fought might have changed and maybe mm-hmm. people aren't. I I don't, I don't know enough about that. Um, like I said, the people that I trust have been skeptical of arguments, uh, made, uh, saying that we're more peaceful now. Um, but even if that is the case, advancing technology has also increased the odds that it doesn't take much for a huge catastrophe to happen.
0: What are your um, thoughts on using some of this stuff outside of war for like other opportunities?
1: I mean, certainly, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing AI is potentially useful in, uh, medical imaging. It seems to have its issues there too, but it's still young. So I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I think it, I, I mean, you and I are talking right now, thanks to technology. Um, uh, mm-hmm one of the, you know, one of the things that makes tango work is how easily we can communicate with people around the world. Um, so I absolutely think that, that there are benefits and we should be taking advantage of those benefits. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm not convinced that we're more peaceful.
0: (laughs) I mean, I know that there is less impoverished people Now, than over the course of human history. And there are more and more people being lifted out of absolute poverty every day than ever before. Um, And people can argue about that, but the data seems pretty clear to me. Um, Any thoughts about using artificial intelligence specifically for environmental issues, like solving those sorts of problems and increasing stewardship around the planet using tech?
1: There was, um, yeah, there's there's been a few things that I have seen that I think are really interesting. There was, um, I should have I should have pulled up information about this before we started. There was uh, a really interesting report that came out, uh, I think, in 2019, um, by a bunch of AI researchers who were looking specifically at that. How can we use AI to address different issues? Um, and so. They were looking at, you know, how can we use AI to improve building efficiency? How can we use AI to improve transportation efficiency? And I think there's, I think there's just a lot of areas where AI could be really useful for that. Um, I it's been a while since I've looked into this, but there were some there was some research being done where AI was able to help um, better track endangered species. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of ways that uh, that AI can be used to to help improve things from that perspective.
0: What do you think is the the connection between war and like climate change or the deterioration of the natural world?
1: Um, I mean, a lot of war is fought over resources, right? So if we're losing resources, it would give us reason to expect war. Um, the, there have been a lot of arguments uh, and evidence pointing to the war in Syria as having been triggered by, uh, I think it was droughts associated with climate change. Um, I think there's, I mean, yeah, it just comes back to if, if we don't have as many resources as we're used to, uh, that is often what triggers war.
0: Right. I think most people when they listen to this and hear about the stuff we're talking about are like generally on the same page. And, you know, I, I really don't know, but um, like people don't want us to to kill everything on the planet because that seems kind of lame if you ask me. So so I'm wondering if like your thoughts on how. The general public or the masses can gain more influence over the way we make big decisions like this in society because you're talking about one person, Putin and Biden having dominion over the whole planet. Like that seems ridiculous. So, like, how can like the masses gain more more power than than I don't know? I, I think of like giant oil tycoons or like the military industrial compacts continuing to profit off making more and more weapons. How do you think people can get more of a say in these issues?
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I definitely, I think people underestimate the power of their own financial decisions um, in a couple ways. I mean, there's, you know, the, the idea that we should be consuming less anyway, um, that a lot of our consumption is what drives uh, a lot of the, the issues around climate change. Um, but also where you're investing your money. you know, are you investing in oil companies? Are you investing in banks that support oil companies? Um, That was one of the most impactful things that I've learned about that a person can do is if your bank is funding oil companies, you can tell them to stop. And if they don't stop, you go to a bank that isn't. And there's a lot of credit unions and stuff like that, that that, um, that aren't funding uh, oil industry. And that's when banks don't like to lose lots of customers. Um, so that is actually one of the most impactful things you can do because right now oil companies are continuing to to build and grow because they're getting loans from banks.
0: That's um, a great point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who do you bank with?
1: Uh, I bank with Elevation's credit union in I th- Colorado. I thought and, so. As do I. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> I actually, I also have, I, previously lived in Idaho and I've got a a credit union in Idaho that I that I bank with as well.
0: I think it's a big deal. I think where you spend your money and where you store your money is is a really big deal. I think it's just as big a deal as as who you vote for, if not even Mm -hmm. more so, because you get to vote every day with your dollars. I think that's pretty massive. And then you can vote with your dollars as you sleep by picking the right financial institution. So I think that was Mm -hmm. a great point. I appreciate you saying that. So we've been talking about um, existential threats to destroying life on Earth for humans at, at the very least. Maybe the roaches would do pretty well. But, um, do you ever think about like talking about events that could end life on Earth? Do you ever think about like asteroid deflection technology? Any way we can get more interest into this topic? Because this is something that's kind of pretty concerning to me. It's caused like most of the last five uh mass extinction events, I think, maybe not, but yeah.
1: It was certainly the, the, dino, the what triggered the dinosaur extinction. I don't know. I don't. That's that's actually a question. I don't know enough about the other extinction events. I don't remember if they were asteroids or not. Um, so the the one piece of information that I've heard that made me feel a lot better about asteroids is that uh, groups like NASA and I, I feel like there's other groups too, and I'm drawing a blank. Have actually done a really good job of mapping everything that could potentially hit Earth, uh, at least over our lifetime, and I think possibly a lot further. Um, and nothing seems to be posing a risk right now. Now, there there is always a chance that we're missing something or that something comes out of nowhere, um, but. I, people that I trust have said that we seem to be actually be doing a pretty good job of tracking asteroids. So, uh, that, that helped me sleep a little bit better regarding asteroids in terms of deflecting them (laughs) until the movie don't look up came out. I was fairly confident that if an asteroid was coming towards us, we would all try to work together to (laughs) make it go away. Um, and I, I do actually think that's still the case. I think an asteroid is, uh, unlike climate change is a very concrete, easy to see enemy.
0: Um, I think we are, I think that movie, I saw the film as well. Um, I don't think it's, I think it's a bit, a bit too pessimistic, uh, based on my bias experience of talking to four people who are working on trying to save the world every single week, I have the, the tendency to believe that we are going to get it done and we're all working together and there's people really passionate about it. And on top of that, I believe that one person can make a difference. So when I talk to a bunch of people every single week who I see are dedicating their lives to solving these issues, um, I'm like, okay, we're definitely going to get it done. I don't know when, but I mean, the the wave, the momentum can't stop. Um, so, and I, I appreciate the, the work that you're doing. Obviously, that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, I'd like some more answers, I guess. I mean, if we've been trying to get there's probably been people have been trying to denuclearize at the very least since like the people with the hippie signs with the peace signs in the 1960s and seems like we have more nukes than ever before so it might not have worked and you know what we have more carbon emissions no we actually
1: i I will say we do not have more nuclear weapons in the states Uh, yeah no 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 we peaked in the late 80s early 90s at I don't, I don't remember what it was for each country, but around the world, there were about 70,000 nuclear weapons, 75,000 nuclear weapons. And now we're down to just 14 or 15,000, which is still plenty Huge. to destroy everyone on earth. Like you'll kill everyone on earth if those get launched. Um, but yeah, we're, we're actually, there's a lot less. It's uh, it's just that it's, all of it is is sort of ridiculous because yeah you can kill everyone on earth with that many nuclear weapons if you want to
0: yeah well well carbon carbon you're next um and <laughs> it's uh it's just never too late to to keep working on something if it's worth i mean at the very uh, the very limit just uh, yeah i don't know living but like i just I just think of like i just think i'd like love just like comes to mind like it's it makes life worth living like why why have the potential to put a stop to all, all love on earth? It just seems, seems silly, but I think someone makes one might make the argue, the argument that the nuclear weapons is what's allowing them to continue living and, and loving. So it's, it's a complex topic, but it's, yeah, it's been cool. Cool. Having you on. Do you want to share a bit about the podcast that you've worked on before we, we kind of sign off the FLI podcast and not so cool? Uh,
1: Yeah. So uh, it, to clarify, it has. I've I lasted interviews for them in 2019, um, but the FLI podcast is great. If you want to learn more about them, they've. Oh, it's uh, Future Lucas Life was a Institute. Host, yeah. Lucas was a host for a while, and I think they're getting someone else now. I don't know enough about what's going on with that, but that's a really great podcast. Uh, obviously, I think the episodes I did were great, but um, <laughs> if uh, if you want to uh, to hear others, they've been they've been happening regularly. Uh, oof, I think we started him in two thousand sixteen. Cool. Um, And then the Not Cool podcast was uh, a series that I did where I interviewed uh, climate experts uh, from around the world on a variety of topics. I think I ended up talking to over 30 climate scientists. um, And we talked about everything from how to communicate about climate change issues to the AI stuff about how AI can help us address climate change issues um, the impact of forests, the impact of methane and, and other, other uh, gases besides carbon, uh, greenhouse gases. Um, finance, that came up in a couple of the, the episodes. Um, sort of the, the city impact and local impact and how to, uh, um, how to become more resilient to climate change. Uh, there were there were just a ton of great episodes. I highly recommend that. And i I realize I'm biased, but I thought it, I had so much fun.
0: Well, being biased is fun. What what, <laughs> what were your, some of your uh, biggest takeaways from working on the the not cool podcast? Not so cool.
1: Not cool. It's the not cool podcast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, the banking one was actually one of those that that came up in one of the, the episodes that I did. Uh, so so definitely just changing podcast. your bank. <laughs> um, the, I, I think understanding forests, the forest one was actually, um, a, a really interesting one for me. Um, we did do one on, uh, climate change and conflict that, that had, I'm trying to remember what some of the outcomes, what some of the things we discussed were, um, uh, sort of drawing a blank on that one, but the, the interview was very interesting. There were little facts that, like I might have known, but just hadn't really dawned on me. Um, so things like, uh, um, you know, as as weather gets hotter, uh, it means that roads get damaged more easily, and concrete and you know asphalt is one of the most carbon-intensive things you can uh, that we're using, and so to have to be repeatedly fixing. Roads with something that is making the situation worse. Like there's just there's a lot of um, sort of cyclical things that that just keep exacerbating, that that come up in a bunch of these different episodes.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing is about the roads is that they're built to to be within a certain like temperature range, and then that Mm -hmm. is like widening now, which will like mess up the roads. If is is that Mm -hmm. what you're talking about? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right. So, where can people find that those podcasts or that podcast?
1: Um if you just do a I think if you just do a Google search for either the FLI podcast or the Not Cool podcast, I think they should come up pretty quickly in a Google search.
0: Right up. Um
1: or if you go to the go to the futureoflife.org, um I believe they have uh in one of their menu items you can you can find their podcasts.
0: Cool. Well, Ariel, thank you for coming on, so I could talk about something that's not explicitly related to the environment. It's kind of very human. Nuclear weapons are kind of a very human, human thing. Um, so it's interesting to get your perspective on that. Any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world or living in a world that doesn't that still has billions of people instead of like a couple thousand?
1: <laughs> um, cockroaches. Yeah, I I think. So actually I'm going to advise people to do something that I'm guilty of not doing. And that is contacting your representatives. Everyone I talk to hears or tells me that that's actually one of the most effective things you can do. The representatives listen when, when you contact them. Um, So I would, I would recommend doing that. I need to get better about it.
0: I think that's a really good piece of advice. The people from something Colorado called me yeah so th- they called me and they asked me to call my representative and um and I was like sure you know I cold call for my business so whenever someone cold calls me I'm like hey man what's going on like how you doing and they're like whoa like why is someone's so, like happy to hear from me and I, I did what she said she asked me to ask a senator to do something about some bill and then this the or the, the representative called me back like a week later it's like hey Ethan just want you to know like we did it like we did the thing that you asked so like call us back anytime. We'd love to hear from you. So you're, you're like, you're bang on. I think that's great advice uh, mm-hmm. for people who are looking to achieve impact. And I, I really appreciated your time today on the podcast and I appreciate what you're doing. And I hope that you can, um, you can get denuclearized the world for us. <laughs> I'd, give, I'd give you big props for that.
1: Thanks. <laughs>
0: yeah. You're welcome. Fingers
1: crossed. <laughs>
0: cool. I'm, I'm rooting for you. So thank you. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time and everybody we'll see you next week. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.